are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working on Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez. Welcome back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for tuning in again this week. Great to have you. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you from Dallas, Texas, which is home base for me. This program is all about helping people more meaningfully and productively connect with their work and equipping organizations to do the same for their employees. It was originally inspired by the meaning and work research I've been doing over the last 15 years and now complements the work that I do at Insignium, which is a global management consulting firm. I'll get to the program with my guest in just a moment, but a thank you to my media partner and sponsor, Jobbing.com. They are the leading locally focused job board in the nation and are dedicated to helping employers find quality talent in their own backyard while giving job seekers control over their search. Thanks, Jobbing.com. Great partnership. Last week, if you missed the show, you can always catch it on the pre- on the record, we were on the air with Sheila Leiberman, who is the former founder and owner of RPH On The Go USA, a company that when she sold it in June of 2008 was the largest pharmacist staffing company in the U.S., Today, she is an independent health, wellness, and fitness professional and enjoys using her healthcare knowledge and desire to help others realize good health in many ways, including bridging the gap between Western and holistic medicine for people in search of living healthier lives. We talked about her pioneering role as a female entrepreneur who was wildly successful despite being told in her early years that her business would never take off. Boy, did she prove them wrong. She gave a humble interview and shared about how she grew the company to $35 million in revenue prior to selling it in 2008. Um, Really great conversation with her. Wonderful human being. With us this week is Paul Wiley, who is the co-founder and chief executive optimizer at Apargo, the first schedule optimization company to deliver value-based schedule recommendations for healthcare providers at time of booking. We'll be talking about how this company came to be founded and what they're up to, along with some of the key strategies Paul employs personally and professionally to optimize his life and work. Paul joins us today from the Apargo offices in Irving, which is inside the Dallas area. Paul, welcome to Working on Purpose. Great. Thanks, Elise. Great to be here. Yeah, this is fun. So I've been I've been chasing you for about a year now, and I finally got you on the air. Here we are. Um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, so before we get started, I know a little something about our about your background, Paul, but of course our listeners don't. So will you just introduce yourself and share a bit about your background before you founded this venture? Sure, absolutely. So um, Opargo is in healthcare, but I cannot claim to be um, a healthcare. Person, geek, um, experienced individual yet. Um, we've been doing this for over three years. Um, at some point, I'm going to have to admit to myself that, and others that I am in healthcare and here to stay. But <laughs> for, um, my past is actually in the technology and travel industries. So I uh, was with United Airlines for a while in charge of their corporate um, products division and then most recently in the corporate um, division of Sabre here in Dallas as well. And so um, really a, a travel background that's been merged and technology background that's been merged into the uh, healthcare world is really uh, where I've uh, come from. Okay, great. Now, um, I always like to, especially since you've, you've co-founded a company, I forgot to ask you and I forgot to actually dedicate it to memory. What's your education in, in again? Sure. Um, background is uh, undergrad in uh, business, uh, international business in Spanish um, from College of Worcester in Ohio. Played tennis in college and then 
um, have an MBA from SMU here in Dallas. Okay. Okay. The MBA, I remembered. Great. I like to bring that up, Paul, only because some of the listeners that are tuning into this program particularly are probably curious about your background, your education, because you're a co-founder and you founded a company. So that's why I wanted to go there. Um, all right, so Opargo, I know a little bit about it because of our conversations and what I read on your website and in the news, but for, again, our listeners, what does the company do and how did it come into existence? Sure. Um, Opargo, what we do, we're a practice optimization solution in healthcare. Um, what we've essentially done is um, applied the yield management um, and revenue management aspects of the airline industry and pulled it into healthcare. It's never existed before. We have some patents pending um, on this to be able to make sure the right patient is seen at the right location at the right time to also ensure that physicians and practices are the right kind of busy. Um, so often you hear of people working and working and working and and. The problem, though, is are they working well? Are they working efficiently? Are they working smartly? Um, this can be done from an individual perspective. It can be done um, from a um, corporate or organizational perspective. Opargo has the, the algorithms and the technology to make sure that, that these physicians are working in the right type of way while also ensuring that they're providing the optimal care to patients as well. So that's what, what we've built. Okay, I got to chime in on something really interesting that you just said there that takes me back to an interview I did in January with Bob Binkowski. He talked about how two separate industries, when you when you combine and look at two separate industries and see where they converge, you can often find innovation. So he looked at his aerospace background and looked at to see what maybe how it would overlap and converge with healthcare and talked about that. That was his interview. So what you just talked about, how you brought like some of the travel perspective and your travel experience into healthcare and what you were doing there is really fascinating, Paul. I didn't realize that's, I, I should have gotten that's what you were doing, but I didn't get that. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's fascinating because if you think about it from an airline perspective, there's set number of seats on a plane. In general, there's more passengers who want to get on that plane than if possible, and there's different um, types of passengers who um, are trying to get on. Um, from a healthcare perspective, there's a set number of uh, time slots or visits that are able to be seen in a day from a uh, physician's perspective. In general, there's more patients than um are able to get in in a given day, and each visit has a differing need. Um, some are more urgent um, than others. So applying those two um, areas together allow us to make sure that that um, we're driving healthcare in the right direction. Mm. That's fascinating, and I wonder if that gets us to this interesting phrase that you talked about with me on the phone that I've been dying to hear more about, and that's this notion of meaningful collision. You said something about this is one of the ways that a pargo has been built and that you try to take advantage of it. So tell us more about that phrase and if it does get to what you were just describing there before. Yeah, it, it absolutely does, and you know, I can't take credit for coining this term, um, but it's one that we use often, and we really apply both uh, professionally and I apply personally as well. Uh, Tom Perkowski, who's the assistant dean at SMU Business School, pushed this, and it was his terminology, and, and it's what he um, really prodded into, into people as we were going through grad school. And the idea is making sure that you're intentional um, and taking advantage of every single encounter that you might have. Um, and in doing so, 
So you're not supposed to just take value, but also to give value. So as you're encountering different people, make it meaningful. Don't just walk by and say hello. But what are things that, that you can garner as well as things that you can give out of these collisions and thus making them meaningful um, in, your, in your daily life, your um, typical uh, activities? Mm. Okay, so what that sort of speaks to me as then, Paul, is it kind of reminds me of what we talk about here at Insidium, this idea of generous listening, right, where we're really, really paying rapt attention to what this, what somebody's telling us without, we're really trying to suspend our filters and how we're trying to make sense of all that, which of course goes against all human common sense um, and normal human ways of working. So when you talk about meaningful collision, I would guess that you have to be really fully present and look for and lean into those possibilities in order for you to, to, to make the most of those encounters. Yes? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Elise. And, and the reality, too, is that it's all about leaning in and being present, as, as you mentioned, making sure that you're there and you're aware. Um, but what's important here, too, is it can't be one-sided. Um, one-sided meaningful collisions, I think, is essentially just a collision. Um, but, you know, when, it's, when you're actively trying to give as well as receive is where there's value across the board and, and you see the um, incremental benefits from those types of activities. You're reminding me, I, was, I gave a, a talk about three weeks ago on um, basically the importance of being able to manage crucial conversations extremely well in, in the workplace. And there was one woman in the, in the audience who just, she, she and I just hit it off. And we both said, we must meet. We must find a way to see if there's any synergies for us to work together. And it seems to me like that kind of qualifies for a meaningful collision. Am I on the right track? Yep, that's absolutely okay. right. Absolutely okay, right. Okay, cool. Cool, cool. Well, can you give us an example? I, I'd like to hear how this has shown up for you at Apargo as to maybe how you've advanced Apargo somehow through a meaningful collision. Yeah, I mean, this is, I'll give you the layup answer, which is um, Opargo is a result of uh, a meaningful collision. So my co-founder um, of Opargo, Dr. Aaron Lloyd, he's a pain management physician here in Dallas. And we happened to just be sitting next to each other at grad school. Um, he went back to business school um, to, as he said, quote, unquote, fix his practice. He had seen a significant decline in income. He was trying to understand what was happening, both from a cost as well as a revenue perspective. So we went back to try and fix his business. Um, and I was going back as part of uh, um, just going back to school with, with Saber. And we literally were sitting next to each other and about halfway through through the program, um, we happen to talk, happen to start talking about what what we do, and some of the issues he had, and some of the, uh, my background as well. And sure enough, just this engagement between us created the business as a whole. Um, it allowed us to say see that there's an opportunity both to work to add, together as well as add value, and thus actually build uh, this business as a whole. Another piece of the background that I didn't know in terms of the history. So you've been at, I know that you've been at this for three years, you said, right, with Opargo? That's right. Is that, yep. Okay. So how long did that initial germination then of the conversation take before you said, all right, let's do this. Let's, let's, let's craft a company. Let's create an offering here. Sure. Um, well, one of the beauties of SMU, and in particular the executive MBA program, is um, in order to graduate, you're required to um, create a business. Um, it's the senior thesis for no better terms. Um, and so we had a great opportunity to um, put this into practice while wrapping up school. 
And in doing so, it allowed us to feel out, is there something there, going out to the market, understanding if there's interest in the market, while I would say in a protected environment, <laughs> for no other terms, um, but also in a required environment. Uh, it forced us to focus on this because we had to as part of, uh, as part of the program. Um, and so, you know, it took us a solid six to nine months just to see, is there something here? How should we move forward? Do we want to move forward? The response was overwhelmingly positive and allowed us to start to um, to um, raise some money to be able to execute on the business and move forward. Um, but there's def- there was definitely some back and forth, but done in a germination process that existed within the SMU walls. Okay. So I don't know if you know this or not, but I do teach. I'm an adjunct faculty at SMU in the communication department. Mm-hmm. And um, I love SMU. I think it's a great a great organization. Uh, and I do know about this program and how it does does I didn't well actually let me back up I did not realize that part of the graduation process the requirement was to start a business uh, that's fascinating and I but I have met several entrepreneurs who've come through SMU and didn't realize that that was their quote thesis yep yeah that's right and and you know some groups take it obviously further than others <laughs> some um, take it far enough to graduate some take it far enough to create a new career uh, we're obviously more the uh, the latter in that which has been fantastic for us and and again really Kudos to setting the stage in an environment um, such as uh, SMU to be able to pull something like this off. Mm. Um, I uh, well, okay. So le- one of the things I think about when you say pull something off, right? One of the reasons that people are entre- there's only a, a handful of people in terms of the population who are who are entrepreneurs is because it's a hard row. Um, so would you share with us some of the challenges that you've had to overcome in these last three years to grow your company? It's. It's amazing. Um, there's so many things that you don't realize you have to do that have to get done. Um, I mean, things, the minutia that you never truly understand until you start a business. Um, and you need to figure it out. Um, I'll never forget one of the first times that I, I was sitting there, you know, and again, this is going from um, executive role at Sabre to um, a um, <laughs> A organization of one initially of me uh, at Opargo um, with my co-founder, but trying to understand, all right, who's going to do the books this month? Who's going to do the finances? And essentially it was, hey, if I don't do it, they won't get done. Those are the types of realizations that take place when you're um, starting a business. And so, you know, I feel like one of the things that maybe you don't see later on but isn't fully appreciated early on from a startup entrepreneur perspective is is um, humility. Humility is definitely a underappreciated trait in founders, at least for the first few years of a startup, because you're doing everything, both the things that are glamorous as well as most of the times the things that are not. Um, and it's critical. It's critical because if you don't do it, it doesn't get done. Um, I think that trait obviously starts to, humility starts to leave very quickly as the company scales and grows. I'm not saying that's necessarily a good thing, but it's still one that um, it's definitely a interesting experience to go from a uh, large corporate into a, a uh, small startup. Mm. Well, I can. You're rem- you're reminding me, Paul. I in 2006 to 2010, I I was a co-founder of an online feedback portal for the human resource space, and I really get that humility. We did everything, and then some. I, I remember distinctly all of the manual reports I used to have to create because it wasn't automated into the system. And I remember thinking to myself, "There's got to be a better way to do a business and make a living than this." 
So I, I, I know what you're saying, the humility yep. factor. Yeah. That's right. Um, any other, any other, we've got just maybe about a minute or two before we go into the, into the break. Anything else that you want to share with us about challenges before we go on to the next segment? Yeah, I think, you know, another, another piece around challenges that, that oftentimes gets considered but lost is just the fact of cash. Cash is king. Someone told us uh, once very early, cash is absolutely critical. And, and making sure that, that you're managing um, it in the right way. I've heard someone refer to um, capital or cash in regards to startups as, as you're in a game and there's a shot clock and the shot clock is ticking down and you need to ensure that you are working in the right way in the right times in the right methodology before that shot clock turns to zero. Um, and as such, it's a very interesting way to think about how the businesses both are run as well as are successful. Um, and that's a, a piece that is always on the mind of, of a founder. Um, you know, I, I once thought that, hey, once you raise money, then, then it's great. You just get to run the business. The reality is, is once you raise money, then you get to raise some more, and then you get to raise some more. It's really never done, um, but it's also a piece of the, the business that's interesting, and you get to learn, and it's a whole new activity that um, oftentimes uh, people never get to see. Um, and it's critical. It's part of the, the ecosystem of the startup world, and it's a crucial piece of it for that matter. Mm. Great share, Paul. Thanks so much. And perfect timing. It's time for us to go into a break. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. We've been on the air with Paul Wiley, who is the co-founder and chief executive optimizer at Opargo. We've been talking a bit about his own background, how the company came to be, and some of the things he's learned along the way. After the break, we're going to get into how he works with intentionality in his personal and work life. Stay with us. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just joining us, my guest is Paul Wiley, who is the co-founder and chief executive optimizer of Apargo. 
we've been talking a bit about how the company began, and we'll get into intentionality here in just a moment. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. All right, so Paul, one of the other things that you and I spoke about, in addition to that whole interesting topic of meaningful collision, was how you use intentionality. And I know you mentioned that you got some of this when you were at SMU. I'm going to guess it might have happened earlier than that in your life, too. But um, will you talk first about how does how does intentionality show up in your personal everyday life? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think... For me personally, um, I, I'm I'm structured, and I've found that I'm structured because I need to be. Um, that's how I'm most uh, successful. Um, you know, I from my my perspective, I'm I don't sleep a whole lot. Typically, anywhere you know, four or five, six hours a night, and I've always been like that. And you know. I'm not advocating. It's not necessarily a good thing. It's just how I've been built and wired. Um, but it also allows me to have some extra time to be productive. I've found that these are times where I get the most done, which is fantastic. Um, it's also a great part of the day. Um, but it also sets a really clear routine of, you know, the quiet times, the, the workouts, the taking kids to school, those things before even heading into the work. Um, into going into the office or going to visit customers. Um, those are things that I find if I'm not following that process or structure, then they don't get done. Um, and it's, again, very hard to to not be able to stay in this. Um, and as such, we I work hard to ensure we stay in this routine. Um, the other part, too, is as it rolls into my uh, typical day is – I always try and know what my day looks like the day before, at least from a meeting perspective. Um, you know, for, I try to make sure there are no planned surprises, as I call them, just um, unplanned surprises. So, you know, unplanned surprises are part of doing a startup. You know, things come up. Customers have questions. We have a new opportunity. We have a new deal um, coming in. Those are unplanned, and those are fantastic. But planned surprises, meaning me not being prepared, um, are unacceptable. And those are the things that cause the most angst, both with myself as well as with the team. So that's really how I try and drive this forward and ensure that um, I'm intentional across both a personal as well as a professional day. Okay, I want to grab one thing that I happen to know about in, in your, your personal segment, and that is that you're an Ironman. And for those listening on the air who don't know what an Ironman is, it's, and you correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, it starts off with a two-mile swim, and then you get on a bicycle and ride 112 miles, and then you finish it up with a cool marathon, which is 26 miles. Is that, do I have the distances right? Yeah, that's pretty close. Yep. Pretty close. Okay. Pretty close. All right. Well, so here's what I know about that because my my husband, when I was married, um, did Ironmans, and I know how much it takes to to train for that. Takes a lot of time to train for all that. So, how do you factor in time? I mean, here's give us an example of how you would use intentionality to be able to fit all that training in your life, for example. Sure. Um, Well, one of the the best tools and resources that I have, and again, this goes to to planning or structure versus unplanned, is Um, I use a system that emails me every single day the workout that I'm supposed to have. I wake up, I know what the workout is, and actually I know the night before, um, here's my workout for tomorrow, perfect, let's go, get it done. Um, It removes thought, it removes second-guessing, it removes complaining, it just basically says, here's what needs to be done, and let's go do it. That type of intentionality around the process and the program um, allows me to make sure that I'm removing any potential pitfalls to get it done. 
and you know the fact is is that so often um, it does take time. Um, you know, long run this morning, for example, and um, it took a couple hours, but. Those are also a couple hours that I was able to spend thinking about different things, such as work. I find that oftentimes I'll solve more of my work problems on a long run or a long bike ride than I will sitting in an office. And so while it's certainly a, a great release and a great opportunity, it's also been a fantastic way to um, get some things done from a quiet time perspective um, to be able to push the business forward as well. Okay, that's a brilliant, brilliant example. And just really quick for the listeners, I just want you to all to get that. So here's a gentleman who he's founded a business. He's got a full life. He's got a wife who works. He's got children. He's training for an Ironman. And even just those training sessions, you've built in a way to be able to bring intentionality to thinking about things that you need to work through. I just, I think that's brilliant. Thanks. Yeah. Well, now let's talk about how you use intentionality at Apargo and how that how you're using that to actually build the business. So say more about that, and then I've got a couple questions that I want to dig into further about that. Sure. Um, well, I think, you know, you have to be intentional around things like your team. You have to be intentional about things around customers, environment. Um, those are areas that if you're not intentional, then... Um, it will be created on their own, and it is very seldom a good thing. Because if you're calling something it, it doesn't have a whole lot of meaning or purpose to it uh, more often than not. And as such, you know, how do you want your team to engage? How do you want them to treat customers? How do you want them to treat each other? How do you, um, you know, how quickly should a someone respond to emails or answer the phone or, you know, those are the types of things that, again, being very purposeful about, being intentional about, allows you to, um, one, make sure the business is running in the right way, but secondarily, making sure that that it's running in a way that um, removes doubt. Because so often I find that people don't try and necessarily do the wrong thing, but they don't always have the guidance to do the right thing. And so balancing those two things together are critical um, to drive success and drive the business into where you want it to be. So I can just hear right now people listening to this conversation going, yeah, this all, yeah, but yeah, but this all sounds really, really good. But what about the sheer momentum of everyday life that just overwhelms and cascades and runs over the top of you? How do you keep that in check so that you can stay in that intentional place to be able to continue to create the business the way that you want to? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not easy, but it's still critical. Um, and the reality is you have to prioritize what's important. And I think if you're not prioritizing things like culture, then you have a prioritization problem. And that's that's really what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, and you and I have spoken about this a little bit, but uh, we, the work that we do at Insignia, we do an awful lot of work with cultural assessments and then cultural change and development. And you're right. I mean, what happens is if you're not intentional about this before, you know what, you have a culture that you didn't intend to create, but it's not serving you very well at all. Mm-hmm. Right? That's right. So, so one of the things that I find interesting, and I, I don't, I don't know if it really was Peter Drucker that said this, but he's attributed to it often, is that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Uh, and we tend to believe that very strongly, of course, at Insignium. But how, how do you define culture? 
Yeah, I would define culture, at least in a very broad brush way. Um, I think of culture as almost, um, quote-unquote, uh, corporate integrity. Um, so you think of integrity, and I love this definition of integrity. Integrity is who you are when no one's looking. So culture, in my mind, is how your organization is when you're not around. Um, that's what I think of um, when I think of culture. Um, because, again, the culture will exist when you're not there, and how have you set it up, and is it enacting and enabled in the way that you would want and expect? And obviously, you can dig in further into exactly what that means in a detailed manner, but the fact is, is that's in the grasp of it. That's what I believe culture is. Mm, I like that. I often like to think about culture as that invisible hand that just governs every aspect of an organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So speaking of culture, right, so part of what I find fascinating about culture when, whenever I walk into a new client and, that I haven't been into before is just, just observing the space they work in. It tells me so much about their culture. And you've told me that the Opargo offices have a, a wide open office space set up. Can you tell us a little bit about what that looks like and how does that relate to what you're trying to do with culture? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so we don't have offices um, in Opargo. We have meeting rooms, conference rooms, um, but but no offices, individual offices. So everyone is in a big, um, big open area. I feel like it, it really helps um, passing information back and forth, making quick decisions, removing a lot of the barriers um, associated with that. Um, and then just, you know, we, we've uh, decorated the offices based off of everyone's favorite um, favorite vacation spot. And so I'm sitting here in the Colorado room with a giant mural of, it looks like, uh, Breckenridge um, on the wall. And so one of the team members um, said this was their favorite spot, and as such, uh, that's what it is. But, you know, there, there are ways where you can certainly drive culture and have fun at the same time and also give people ownership associated with it as well. Um, And, yeah, it's both visible as well as invisible, as you mentioned before. Did you have have the offices? Well, I'm sure you probably didn't always have an office space when it was just you, maybe. Mm -hmm. But was your office ever configured differently? No. No, this is um, how I purposefully built the office. Uh, We tore down walls and we opened it up to have this big open space. Actually, when we got the office, when I I looked at this space initially, there was a huge office back with a ton of windows in the corner, and they said that was where the former president sat. And I said, we're tearing that wall down immediately um, and opening it up for everybody, and it's been fantastic. Uh, I wish I could see it. I'd love to I'll look forward to visiting you in person one of these days and actually seeing that. Um, I, I think there is, yeah, there's just so much to space. And it kind of makes me think, Paul, I haven't thought about this before, but your configuration, the way that you've got all that, that open space, it just seems like, you know, when I compare that to, say, like a virtual team that doesn't even work in the same room, you have to work so much harder to find ways to communicate and connect when you work virtually. Whereas if you're in that one big open place, it would seem like it would really be, it would just take a lot of the energy out of having to find ways to communicate. Do you, is that true or? Yeah, it, yeah, I, I think that's right. And, you know, there is a balance, though, because there's been a huge rage of, of open office, everyone loves it, and then everyone starts to hate it. And the reality, though, is um, the open office space definitely works in regards to quick dissemination of information. However, there are certain personalities that 
work much better without this type of environment. Um, and as such, giving those team members the opportunity to um, hop in a room whenever they want, um, go to a couch in a closed area, be able to get some work done. Um, there's definitely a balance because otherwise um, it gets hard. It gets really hard. Um, and so, so there are pros and cons of every situation um, and every setup. Um, I feel like for an organization of our size and our stage, this is definitely the best one for us. Mm-hmm. I do really appreciate the idea that there's pros and cons and can completely see that. I can. I'm now remembering Paul years ago when I went from working in a, in a where I had my own closed door office and used to make a lot of outbound calls to prospects, um, offering our consulting services, and then I came in to to um, consult for one of my clients and joined the team, w- which worked in a cube environment. And I remember so distinctly, Paul, what, sitting there at my desk, and I would sneeze, and somebody from across the room would say, bless you. And I felt so encringed upon. And then as time went on, right, I came to really enjoy that feeling of camaraderie and physical connectedness to my team. But it did take me time to to for that to happen. And, and maybe not everybody would do that, would be able to, um, what do I want to say, um, activate or respond that way but that's how it happened for me you're you're reminding me of that yeah i think that's absolutely right and and you know it's funny there are both written and unwritten rules to working in an open office space um you know such as um if you're going to take personal calls hop in a room um if it's going to be a long call hop in a room um one of the first things i i did when we went um, into this environment is I bought everyone headphones. And, you know, headphones on mean that you're digging into something. Headphones off mean that you're obviously working but uh, um, are okay to be um, asked a question or be engaged in a discussion. So there's definitely um, some of those, uh, those culture aspects that come into um, working in an open office space that wouldn't necessarily exist in, in other environments. Mm-hmm. So it occurs to me, you obviously are a very thoughtful human being, and you, you certainly do bring intentionality to your, your personal and your work life. Again, I'm going to guess that there are people on the, that are listening to this conversation who are maybe in the early stages of having founded a company or they're trying to grow and get it to the next level. Um, can you, maybe this builds on what you've learned for, from your challenges, but can you maybe offer some maybe advice for how they can help develop their company and get it onto the next level? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest, it's very broad crushed, but I would say keep going. Um, don't quit. Yeah, uh, right. That's half the battle. It's, it's not easy. You know, there's a saying that, that we use here often, which was if it was easy, then someone else would have already done it. So the reality is, is that what you're doing, if it adds value, if you enjoy it, if you've got a great team, you will absolutely run into struggles and roadblocks. It won't be easy. But the people who succeed are the ones who don't quit. So we, again, often say if it were easy, someone else would have already done it. We're doing things that have never been done before. We're excited by that. And as such, we um, make sure to continue to push that, that forward, recognizing that there might be every once in a while a setback, but um, you keep going. You're, uh, the last couple of interviews that I've had with female entrepreneurs, both of them said the exact same thing, Paul. This thing of there was always a point in the business that they could recognize where they there was an opportunity, an invitation to quit. 
<laughs> and it would have been really sage advice if they had taken it, but they didn't. They didn't heed that advice. They didn't. They they didn't quit. And then, of course, the rest is history. I don't know. If you heard me talk about the, the guest from last week who built her business for thirty five million at a time when one women didn't run businesses, and two when her niche category wasn't in existence elsewhere. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I mean, and and when you're at that crossroads, as you mentioned. Um, Really, it starts to show whether what you're doing is a passion or it's a profession. If it's a passion, then you're not going to quit. If it's a profession, profession, then you're potentially more willing to to make make that decision. And I, I'm not saying that it's always right to be stubborn-headed and never, never stop. But at the same time, um, there is definitely a distinguishing point that exists um, in every business, and that trait certainly comes through at times. So that makes me think then, Paul, I think about the importance of self-understanding and self-awareness. So being really clear about why you're doing what you're doing. Why am I running this business? Is this, what is this doing for me? Um, I was listening to, uh, I, try, I, I work on my Spanish. You said you work with Spanish. I work on my Spanish on Wednesdays. It's one of the four languages that I work on each week. And I was listening to an interview this morning in Spanish about um, how somebody who has significance as a Gallup strength will oftentimes evaluate opportunities and not even ask for the pay because it's about significance and impact about what, what governs their choices of what they get involved in. And that reminds me of what you're saying here is being really clear about why, why are we doing what we're doing? Is if we, is if we know that, we, we know the answer and which way to go in the fork in the road. Yep, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful conversation. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that if you don't mind. Um, passion versus profession, and I'll I'll do my best to attribute to that to you wherever I possibly can. But I'm gonna take that from you, Paul. Feel free, absolutely. All right, awesome. Well, here we are. Already time for another short break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Paul Wiley, who is a co-founder and chief executive optimizer at Apargo. We've been talking a bit about his perspective on intentionality, culture, and various other things and the ways he's built his business. After the break, we're going to talk about how he is looking for change and opportunity in the industry. Stay with us. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Look 
and inspired, encouraged, and connected on our lively, award-winning, healthy living power hour, Star Style. Be the star you are with host and empowerment architect, Cynthia Bryan. Live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in to the Power Party for positive, uplifting, life-changing talk radio. Visit StarStyleRadio.com. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise. A-L-I-S-E at EliseCortez.com Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Paul Wiley, who is the co-founder and chief executive optimizer at Opargo. He joins us today from his Irving office, which is in the Dallas area. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. All right, so for this last bit of our conversation here, Paul, I really wanted to get into some of the things that you mentioned when we first spoke by by phone about change and opportunity in the industry. So first, um, I I do want to have you sort of You've situated, I know, that Opargo is in, is in the healthcare space. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also said that um, healthcare tends to, to, to be slow to change, though people working within it want to change. So first, would you say more about that perspective? I think that's interesting. We oftentimes, when we think about people not changing, it's because they don't want to. Right. But yet you're saying right. they do. Yeah, I mean, so just uh, to start off, um, healthcare is, Absolutely. There's a huge opportunity for innovation and change in healthcare. Um, that's just a given. I mean, I, I, I laugh about the fact that, you know, healthcare is the industry that's actually keeping the fax machine alive. Uh, <laughs> it is still actively being used, which is completely insane to me. Um, but that being said, um, not everyone wants the fax machine to uh, continue to be alive in healthcare. Obviously, a, f- a few groups do. Um, but based off of that, yeah, there's a huge, huge need for change in healthcare. I mean, but there's challenges. It's, it's not easy. Um, first off, it's a highly regulated environment, as it should be. Um, there's really a few main entities that exist within the industry, you know, the hospital and health systems, the insurance companies, the government, um, these three areas that are really um, engaged in working either together or against each other um, from a market ownership perspective. And they each have a piece of the pie. They're each trying to take or or um, pull a piece or more from, from others. Um, and as such, you know, it, it's a tough industry, but it's one that that needs improvement and needs change, and it's fantastic to see um, individuals from each of these groups, from you know each of these parts of the industry, wanting to push change, wanting to adopt change, and it's a question of how do you make sure that it happens in the right way. Um, and you notice thus far everything I mentioned, which is, unfortunately everything I've mentioned thus far about healthcare has not yet. Um, covered necessarily patients, um, which is not a good thing. You know, the reality is is you have to make sure that patients is a, the patient is at the center of 
of what's going on here in addition to these other um, entities that are involved. And that's what makes it difficult. That's what makes it hard. Um, it's also beyond being obviously a regulated environment. It's a highly critical and emotional type of industry um, just based off of what's happening and, and the services that are delivered. So, yeah, huge opportunity for change um, in healthcare, but it's not easy. I'm reminded of a friend of mine who also took his technology background and brought it into the healthcare space. And he said, it's so tremendously satisfying because I can do so much just to move the needle forward because it's there's so much room for opportunity to change and to, to advance the, the, the industry. So I'm getting what you're talking about. You're reminding me of that conversation that I had with him as well. Also a very strong technology guy coming into the healthcare space. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So you mentioned when we spoke on the phone this notion of leaders versus laggers, and I'd I love to hear you talk a little bit about how that shows up in the healthcare space. Sure. Um, you know, I certainly can't take credit of this. Uh, um, Jeff Moore um, came up with it, um, I think, in his uh, Crossing the Chasm book, talked about early adopters, laggards, yeah. Um, yeah. the people who embrace change and those who are reluctant to change. Um, I would say that there are certainly more laggards in healthcare than there are early adopters um, for several reasons. One is just from an environment perspective, but the second, too, is the criticality of what you're working on means that early adopters clearly are taking risks that someone in potentially the retail environment might not be taken, taking. excuse me. But there needs to be that... Um, the balance between the two, because stagnation um, does not last and cannot last. Um, there's too much at stake in the healthcare industry to be okay with status quo. Um, the health of people, the wellness of individuals, those are critical, um, and thus the improvements um, are essential in order for for things to continue to be moved forward. And as such, while there might be more laggards, you're seeing more early adopters come along um, and start to move the needle, which is why I think you're starting to see an influx of change within healthcare today. Mm. Okay, so given that healthcare is slow to change, but you said there is a demand to change within it, where do you see opportunities in the market to latch onto those groups willing to change and make something actually happen? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly opportunities in any of the entities I mentioned, you know, whether it's hospitals, insurance companies, the government, there, there are opportunities within each of those. Um, and I believe within each of those organizations, there are individuals there that are willing to embrace change. So often we talk about um, it as an industry, but the industry is made up of organizations which are made up of people. And when all sudden done, the people are the ones who drive businesses forward and who drive change forward. So, What's so critical um, in those who embrace change, those people or those individuals, are trying to be really clear about what's the pain point that you're trying to solve. What's the value you're trying to deliver? Um, Those are going to be the ones who more often than not are pushing um, the end or willing to drive the industry forward, I should say. And they can be at any level. They could be in the C-suite. They could be um, a brand new uh, um, person in the organization. Um, often people think that those who are willing to embrace change are the young slash new people in an organization. And you know, maybe that's true. Oftentimes what we find is it's not. The, 
the person who is willing to embrace and drive innovation forward is the individual of whose pain point you are working to solve. And as you're working with that individual, um, you know, help them work with them, help let them help you define and launch this this solution. And as such, that's what's able to to push innovation forward. So instead of saying, hey, you know, this group's tech savvy, we need to work with them. Instead, oftentimes what we want to say is, who's dealing with this problem? And what can we do together to solve this problem, which will benefit the organization as well as benefit that individual? I got to chime in on this. This is just fascinating. There's so much here we could talk about. But I remember reading in the Wall Street Journal an obituary. I think I might have told you about this when we spoke by phone about um, a gentleman who who became a, a surgeon. And when he went to medical school in the 1950s, he said to himself, he asked himself the question, what problem exists that seems impossible to solve. That's what I want to work on. And what that problem was for him was liver transplants. Now, I don't remember this gentleman's name, unfortunately, but if I say this, maybe somebody who's listening will remember and send me an email and tell me. Um, but what I'm thinking of is just this notion of how do you solve a problem? And then it's certainly in this in this case, the healthcare space as well, and one that seems impossible and therefore doing so would be quite valuable. So now I start thinking about what you said about meaningful collision, and I think about what we talk about here in Insignium with, with it, which is the idea of having distinctions, a set of distinctions. So it seems to me that when you're thinking about how can you provide value in the marketplace, you're, you're, you have a, an ability to envision something, to see something uniquely that maybe others completely miss because they don't have that distinction to see it or they're not open to it. Yes, can you comment on this idea? Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, I think they're open to it, and, and or they either are or are not open to it. Um, but what we want to be careful about, is in particular, you know, we use a statement of um, here at Opargo, never be a focus group of one. Um, so <laughs> don't don't be the person who says, hey, here's what we're building to solve this problem that I see. Instead, work with individuals who have this problem, who know this issue, work with them on the solution to make sure that you're delivering something that obviously scales, it's for the market, um, and it's not, um, again, just your idea. Now, clearly there has to be the opportunity to find that problem, to understand how a solution might come about. However, it can't just be all be you. Because, again, uh, very seldom do focus group of one activities um, uh, drive significant success or value. That is a great distinguishing point, Paul. Thank you for that. And maybe this next thing that I wanted to ask you about is related to that. Um, You mentioned pushing through roadblocks in laggard industries when we were on the phone together. Um, Do you see an opportunity now with this approach and what you're looking at in the marketplace, if you can tell us? Yeah, I mean, I think there's all types of opportunities to push through roadblocks um, in healthcare. You know, we're focused on practice optimization, making sure providers are the right kind of busy, busy and patients are seeing the optimal care at the right time. Um, clearly a problem that's been solved in other industries that is now being applied by us into healthcare. Um, you know, but, but the reality is, is if you think of the industries as a whole, um, healthcare and any other laggard industry, reality is, is they won't stay laggard for long. 
I, I believe they won't stay laggard for long. And the reason is, is because there are way too many entrepreneurs, way too many smart people who are looking for opportunities to add value um, that are driving change across any industry. So I would say that um, while laggard industries might always exist to a degree, um, they're laggard not because there is an improvement. It might just be that they're not improving as quickly as others. And as such, um, healthcare is seeing improvement. It might not move as quickly as others, but it's seeing improvement. Um, and it's because there are individuals, there are entrepreneurs, there's innovation taking across this, taking place across this country and across the world that um, want to drive change and are not willing to let an industry grow stagnant. Just taking that in there, I, uh, yeah. So one of the things I, I'm thinking about now is that right time is money. So if we if we are if we are able any any organization is able to cut off some some amount of time in the process of innovation or improving a process or improving or getting an offering up more quickly to market, that's money, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So even if it was incremental change or incremental in, incremental innovation, it still has value to it. Yep. Yep. Okay. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, we're getting close to the end of time here. I, I like to be able to give my, my guest the last word, if you will, Paul. Um, so maybe in about, say, a minute and a half or so, a minute or so, um, will you just give our listeners what else you want to, what, what do you want them to leave with? What would you like to make sure that they hear from you? Yeah, I, I think just in general, what, what I would say is that there are huge opportunities to make a difference both in the world and in your work. Um, you know, so oftentimes you think of what's my purpose? What am I supposed to do? What should I be doing? Um, the opportunities are absolutely there. Um, you can drive change. Um, you can drive change both personally as well as professionally. And again, I will say the opportunities are there. You need to make sure that what you're doing is a passion. Um, and not a profession, if you're thinking from work perspective. You need to make sure from a personal perspective it's, it's, uh, it's fun. Uh, you enjoy it. Um, those are the critical things because you can drive change, and I wholeheartedly believe this, but it's not easy. Um, it's not easy, and you have to be intentional about it, and you have to be purposeful about it. Um, and I would say there are certainly times uh, when you'll want to quit, um, whether it's in a startup, um, technology startup, um, or when you're at, you know, mile 120 of an Ironman. Um, in any of those cases, there is always a time when you say it'd be easier and better to stop. Um, but honestly, seconds, if Paul. it was quick and easy, it would have been done already. Awesome. Wow, what a great way to finish, Paul. Thank you so much for joining me today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Great, me too. Thanks for the time. If you want to learn more about Paul Wiley and what he and his team were up to at Opargo, visit their website. It's www.opargo.com, and that's O-P-A-R-G-O. Join us next week when we talk with the Hunt Institute and their engaged students and faculty from Southern Methodist University, along with various community participants, about their ambitious project debuting on Earth Day 2017. It is certain to be a lively and rambunctious conversation that celebrates activating purposeful work early in these students' lives before they actually formally begin their careers. So see you then. Remember that work is one-third of our lives, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. 
Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work. We'll be right back. 